All right, so we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Man, Solomon has come out slinging. If you've been with us these last few weeks, you might have some bruises from last Sunday and the week before. Chapter 1, we went through and he says, generations come and generations go and you're going to just be forgotten. And he talks about this word hevel, which is translated to meaningless or vanity. And the heart behind it is that, I mean, you're not going to be able to figure out life. Uh, it's, like, it's like trying to catch a vapor. You just can't do it. And then in chapter 2, he talks about the, pleasures, the pleasure experiment. So we talked about that last Sunday. He talked about the stages of life that he went through, that it was you know, partying to kind of building a name for himself and then enjoying that name that he built. And in each one of those phases and stages of life, he, he uh, knew he experienced more than we will ever and he comes out on the other side and says, it's not going to give you what it promises that it, it says it will. And so there's a level of pessimism so far. The right dose of pessimism can be stabilizing for us. Some of you pessimists might feel known for the first time ever when you heard me say that pessimism can be okay. Ecclesiastes provides that to us. It tells us things we don't want to hear, but we need to hear. Ecclesiastes is a gift to us in that way. Henry Cloud speaks to this in his book, Integrity. His, a phrase in his book, Integrity, says, reality is always your friends. Reality is always your friends. So when we're willing to look reality square in the eyes and grapple with brutal facts, it can lead us to wisdom. And that's what Ecclesiastes is for us. If we allow Ecclesiastes to be that friend to us, it actually can shape and mold our lives and can become a gift to us. Ecclesiastes introduces a friend to us named Reality. So just when you thought that we had come out of the dark side of Ecclesiastes and everything else is going to be chipper, well, it's not. And so you thought the first two weeks were intense, LOL. You know what I'm saying? So this week we're going to talk about death. And next week are going to be some blue skies, okay? So we're going to get through this week, and I, I don't want us to bypass it. I want us to feel it, because I, I do believe that this might be one of the greatest gifts that Ecclesiastes gets, gives to us if we hear it. Um, you know, regardless of how you play your cards, we're going to die. It's the reality. Not enough probiotics, not enough spinach. Not enough multivitamins that are going to keep you from that reality. Yes, we want to be good stewards. Yes, eat your spinach. But it's all coming at us. We are all going to experience that reality. Each of us are unbelievably fragile. Each of us are unbelievably fragile. I want you to look at your neighbor and say, you are unbelievably fragile. Now I want you to close your eyes. I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to tell yourself, I am unbelievably fragile. You guys were left less giggly on that one. Um, we're going to tag this sermon, The Great Equalizer. The Great Equalizer. I don't know when you had your season of Tim McGraw. We all have them. For me, it was uh, freshman, sophomore year of college. I was a late bloomer. But this beautiful man's goatee in music has touched the hearts of millions <laughs> of people. Let's, let's think about some of his music. Uh, I like it, I love it. You, you, got it in your, you got it in your head, right? Uh, Indian Outlaw is one of his. Um, Just to See You Smile is one of those that really makes your heart pitter-patter. And then Live Like You Were Dying is 
is a classic that I've gone back to even in preparation for this song. We, we hopefully know this song, Live Like You Were Dying. What I'm going to do is I'm going to sing a little part of it, and I'm going to invite you to sing along at the end. Um, he says, I went skydiving, I went Rocky Mountain climbing, I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named... See, we all had seasons of Tim McGraw. I had no clue what was going to happen in that moment. I had no idea. But you guys sang, and that was less stressful for me. It's a story about a man who gets uh, a word from a doctor that he's going to die. And he readjusts his life based off of that reality. Death became a gift to him. Death can become a gift to us. It gives us perspective. It recalibrates us to value what is what we want to live for. See, the fate of death is real for all of us. Each Sunday, whether you realize it or not, you walk down Paper Mill and you turn into our, uh, our plot of land and to your left as you're coming in, you see uh, a, a cemetery. And this is a reminder every week of this reality. What if instead of ignoring death, we dwelt on it more? See, what mortality does to our perspective on life is a beautiful thing. It slows us down and allows us to know that there is more to life than the treadmill. That's what Solomon's trying to tell us. There is more to life than the treadmill that promises you things that will never deliver on those promises. Death recalibrates us. Moses tells us this in Psalm 90. He says, teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. He says, teach us to number our days, that we would have wisdom. Jonathan Edwards, one of the great thinkers in American history, he uh, wrote out these 70 resolutions, and he would read them to himself every week. And one of those resolutions was this, I resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying. It helped him from not having regret as he considered death. And Solomon does that for us this morning. And we're going to be in it in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting in verse 12. It says this, So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do when, uh, who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I, have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, uh, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after the wind. And so he's just pursued this pleasure experiment, if you remember last week, and he, he went through methodically going through the uh, tasting everything that this life can possibly give on 10. And he comes out and now he begins to change gears and he considers wisdom. 
See, wisdom is a beautiful thing if we adhere to it. He says that there's more gain, and Jesus speaks to this. He says, uh, you can gain the world and lose your soul. And so he recognizes that wisdom encourages us to not lose your soul. Just like light contradicts darkness, likewise wisdom contradicts folly. And then he says, yet, and so there's like a transition. He says, but, but the reality is the same event happens to all of us. There's this great equalizer that exists to all of us. The wise and the fool both die. So what's the point of being wise? That's what he's getting at. What's the point of being wise if the fool and the wise one will both end up having to submit to this great equalizer? And even worse, the wise will be forgotten just like the fool. And so he says, and I hated life. He uses those words. He feels grief. He feels pain. The Westminster uh, Larger Catechism describes the miserable realities post-Eden. When I mean post-Eden, I mean if we go back to the beginning in the garden in Eden, none of this pain existed. Everything was very good. There was no smell of death. There was no smell of sin in that time. There was walking with God and the true nature of what God designed it to be. But sin fractured everything, and now we exist on the other side post-Eden. And so in this catechism, we know catechisms, there's questions and then there's answers. And so we hear it here. It says, what are the punishments of sin in this world? The catechism asks. And the answer is the punishments of sin in this world are either inward, as blindness of mind, a reprobate sense, strong delusions, hardness of heart, horror of conscience, and vile affections, or outward, as the curse of God upon the creatures of our sakes and all other evils that befall befalls us in our bodies, names, estates, relations, and employments, together with death itself. Solomon says, I hate that state. I hate this part of life, and I know hate is a strong word, but it's the word he uses. See, the wise cannot pretend that life is just well and peachy. He was frustrated and felt the pain of what life post-Eden was. See, we can get so used to life now, and forget that this was not the design. But we live post-Eden, and he remembers pre-Eden. He remembers Eden. He remembers the glory of it. And now, post, he feels the pain of sin and death. The fate is the same for the wise. The fate is the same for the fool. See, karma is a scam, is what Solomon is telling us. Solomon mocks the idea of good things following those who do good. Doing good to others, expecting good results is just not reality. And even doing good towards God, we can have a functional view of karma towards God, that if I do good things toward God, then good things will happen to me. That's not reality. Jesus uh, uh, took on the cross, and he did everything perfect before his Father. It's not true, and life is hard, and doesn't always make sense under the sun. And then he says, we are then forgotten. We're forgotten, more fragile, more insignificant than we want to admit. Solomon, even this great king, $2.2 trillion his net value, he feels this the same. Post-Eden, under the sun, we're forgotten, we're insignificant, we're fragile. Yet, the gospel would also say that we might be forgotten here, but we are never forsaken or forgotten. We'll get back to that in a little bit. And then he says it's all vanity. It's all this word hevel. 
you remember that diffuser that some of you are like, what's that for? Is that like because he has COVID and he's trying to protect everybody else? Like, that's not true. I didn't and I don't, but that was an example. Uh, But you guys were some confused. And so this vapor, you try to grab it and you couldn't. You can't grab vapor. And that's what vanity means. You try to grab it and it slips through your hands. It doesn't mean that life is meaningless, but instead that its meaning is unclear. There's a glitch in the system. Doing the right thing won't lead to right and fair and good results. It doesn't happen the way we would think it should. And Solomon's diving into that, and he continues in verse 18. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be a master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all the days are full of sorrow and his work is is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wins. So he begins to reflect on his long resume, his long successful career. And with death breathing down his neck, he begins to question what his work and the making of his great name was for. He begins to question all of it. So with death coming, what will come with what he has made? What, who's going to take over what he has invested his life into? See, we're existed before the fall. In in Genesis 2, we find Adam and Eve working in a garden. They were called to cultivate and keep, and so work is not something that happened post-fall. We were designed by nature to work, but yet there's thorns in our work because of the fall that can cause our work to be painful. So he works, and he builds wealth, and he leaves it to somebody else that he has no control over. He says a fool could take over what he has accumulated and waste all of it. And he's right. After Solomon, the nation of Israel divides into two kingdoms. It fell apart. Everything that he had built fell apart. He had built this powerhouse of a nation. And he looks at his boys and he's like, those are a bunch of dummies. They're not going to do this right. And so he begins to feel the pain of the fact that he's going to be giving this off to those kids. He's like, oh my gosh, these are the guys that are going to get my inheritance. And he begins to feel the pain of the fact that everything that he has now built is going to be given to them. And again, it eventually begins to unravel. And he's pained by it. See, death becomes the great equalizer. And because of it, he enters into this dark space of despair. The Bible gives credence to this space. We don't always give credence to this space, but the Bible does. To feel sorrow, the sorrow of life, to feel the sting of death is woven throughout the scriptures. We have a vast majority of the Psalms that speak to the pain of life. We have a book called 
lamentations that speaks to this. The Hebrew word uh, in the title is how. How can this be? And lamentations. Job is filled with lament and sorrow. In Ecclesiastes, we have a guy who gained everything. And in Job, we have a guy who lost everything in a day. And then Jesus, over and over again, he speaks to this sorrow. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So why does despair come? We experience levels of despair, you know, as we see this movement of deconstruction happening even in our day. We find that the original deconstructor was Solomon himself. And so he's doing that throughout this book of Ecclesiastes. You see, deconstruction around faith can be melted down to a, a few pain points. Now, I don't want to be oversimplistic, but kind of higher level, kind of three pain points that we can find in what we see in deconstruction today. And a lot of its roots are in despair. The first would be uh, a reevaluating what has been added to the Christian gospel. So some are, are deconstructing and saying, man, there's things that have been added to the Christian gospel, and I want to scalpel and open up and kind of take some of those things out, and that's a beautiful thing. A, a, the beauty of deconstruction is if we reconstruct on the gospel of Jesus and making sure we, we calibrate as that as the baseline. Another uh, pain point that we can find here is uh, pain and hurt from the church, leading to questioning faith and, and questioning of Jesus is true. If the church has hurt me or abused me or abused power, then is Jesus real? And those things can go hand in hand in how we interact with people and the hurt that we experience there. And the last pain point would be around sorrow and grief from life and unmet expectations. Maybe you thought that if you followed Jesus, that your life would be easy. And so when life is hard, you question who Jesus is. And I would say maybe your view of Jesus might have potentially been not accurate because he never promised us an easy life. But man, sorrow and grief from life, losing someone you love. My wife and I buried a, 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 our 20-week uh, miscarried child, and parents are never designed to bury their children. Man, the sorrow of life. Experiencing limitations because of health or sickness, job loss, people disappointing us, expectations and hopes dashed, when God doesn't seem to come through like we thought he would, when God seem, seems distant, when injustice or abuse happens, we feel this despair, we feel this, oh my gosh, life is hard. Solomon felt this and we feel this. In Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's classic he wrote an allegory of the Christian faith. And then we meet a couple of characters. Christian is the main character. And he's going through life and he's experiencing all of these things in life. And he's moving towards the celestial city. He's moving towards the castle. He's moving towards kingdom come. And so he's going through life, navigating through the, uh, all the realities of life. And he meets this guy named Atheist. And Atheist, uh, he, centering this character, he also was uh, seeking to go towards the celestial city. And he went looking for it, but he came back because he couldn't find it and went back to his former life and he, he gave it all up. He's like, it's not real. I couldn't find it. And he came back to his life. And when Christian met atheists, at the time he wasn't tempted by what atheists said, but eventually Christian hit despair. And when he hit despair, it led him to, to doubt that castle, that celestial City. See, it's despair that can sometimes jostle us and take us off the track of following Jesus. We are no stranger to this. 
Even for apprentices of Jesus, followers of Jesus, grief will happen. One of the church fathers, uh, St. John of the Cross, he called this the dark night of the soul, where we experience the darkness and the pain and the despair of life. We experience when the comforts of spirituality are taken away from us and we can't feel God in the midst of pain and darkness, where you feel disoriented and confused. And you don't have a grid for this. And so when you go down that path of despair and you don't have a grid for walking through darkness with God, though you can't feel him, some give up. The main the challenge is to press through in those times. See, friends, this is a part of life. You, if you are in this space, I'm going to say it's painful. It is. But keep pressing through. Keep seeking God you will experience something deeper on the other side. I can't guarantee when that will be, but you will experience hope on the other side. See, friends, we will feel these dark times. Darkness is a part of the journey of life. Jesus knows this part of the journey. Jesus experienced this part of the journey. Jesus isn't a stranger to this part of the journey. And more importantly, Jesus has a tender heart on those who are in this part of the journey. He feels it. So is there an answer? Is it hopeless? And we get into enjoyment next week. We don't have time for that this morning. But the hope is that faith in God carry us through. Faith in God carry us through these times. Faith in God stabilizes us. And faith is not a feeling. So faith in God might make you feel like you're alone. It's not a feeling. Faith doesn't always follow feelings. They are separate. But man, faith in God carries us through. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Sometimes we don't feel him right next to us, but by faith we trust that he is. In 1871, Horatio Spafford fleshed out Psalm 23 in this way. And in 1871, uh, in October, almost exactly 150 years ago, the Chicago fires took place and devastated the city. And he felt the effects of that. His business crumbled because of it and felt the pain of the Chicago fires. And two years later, in 1873, Spafford decided that his family should go on a holiday. And so they were going to go to England. He had a friend named D.L. Moody, and he was going to go see D.L. Moody and spend time with him in England. But some work stuff came up, and so he told his wife and four daughters to go ahead. They were in America. They were going to England. No airplane at that point. So they, they took a ship across the sea, and when they did, something hit that boat, and it sank within 12 minutes. And his wife somehow survived, made it to England, wrote him a letter, and in uh, two words, she said, saved alone. So Horatio Spafford, he went to go see his wife, devastated from the Chicago fires, devastated from the loss of four daughters being uh, drowning. And he, when he went to meet her, he was told where the spot was where that ship had sank. And at that spot, he penned this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's how we respond to despair and difficulty. We trust that God cares for us. See, our job is to trust and to not quit in those times. 
Because there's always beauty on the other side. We might not even see it in this life, but there's always beauty. So land with two thoughts. We may experience despair. We likely will. And when we do, we must remember Jesus. Truly, this is not Christianese. I'm not looking for a coffee cup little statement here, but truly remember Jesus. The night before he died, when he took the bread and broke it, took the wine, poured it out, and then he goes into a garden and he feels the wrath of God breathing down his neck and he begins to sweat blood. And then he takes, uh, he goes before Pilate. He gets beaten and unjustly gets uh, criminally put upon a cross. And on that cross, he cried out with a dark cloud over him, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus was forsaken so that regardless of what happens in your life, because of him, you will never be forsaken. So remember Jesus when you go through dark times. The second thought is that we will die. Tim McGraw was on to something. We're unbelievably fragile. And this stabilizes our pursuits. It stabilizes our hopes and the things which matter to us the most. This is in church history, why we do Lent and Ash Wednesday. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. It stabilizes us. See, in our despair and in our death, we do have what Solomon did not have. We are going to die, yes, but that's not it. Death doesn't have the final word. God in in his mercy, he wrote himself into our story. He turned the tide. He swallowed death to promise that one day everything that's sad will come untrue. And this is where Solomon hits a ceiling because he doesn't know what's to come. The greater Solomon has come and done what Solomon couldn't. He entered into our despair. He dealt with it. And on that Sunday morning, he put death to death. And he's now seated at the right hand of the Father and he will come again. And we look forward to that kingdom when everything is made true and is renewed. And with this in mind, we agree with Horatius Spafford, who said, And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. The great equalizer. I have homework for you guys. Don't do this very often. Think about Jonathan Edwards. The resolve to think much on all occasions of my own dying. Not without hope, but the reminder of how finite you are, I want to invite you to think on death this week. Not in a morbid way, but in a way that calibrates you, in a way that reorients your minds on how finite you are and how stable God is. Man, we got a cemetery here. You can come early in the morning, in the afternoon. You can bring your lunch. You can put your sandwich on top of a tomb. So I don't care what you do. But man, walk through the cemetery and remember your dust, and the dust you shall return. Both ridiculously fragile and infinitely secure in Jesus. Teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Let's pray.
Father, though this text is heavy, it's a gift. Lord, help us to not live our lives on the treadmill. Lord, help us to see how ridiculously finite we are, fragile we are, yet how unthinkably secure we are because of what Jesus has done. Lord, for those that might be going through a a time of despair, Lord, I ask for your comfort. I ask for your peace. I pray for just a gentle reminder of your care, that you are with us through the valley of the shadow of death. Help us, Lord. Help us to be a community that don't shun dark spaces but know that you are not an ambulance driver that respond to those things, but you're in it with us. Help us to be people who are willing to be in it with others. We give you thanks for the security we have. In Jesus' name.